There's a famous story about Charles Blondin, the great 19th century tightrope walker who walked a tightrope across Niagara Falls several times in 1860. And each time he would go across that tightrope, he would carry something different with him. And the story goes that one time, one time he did it in a sack. Another time he did it on stilts. One time on a bicycle. One time in the dark. And one time even blindfolded. In fact, he even took a chair and a stove with him and sat down midway across the falls and cooked an omelet and ate it. All to the delight, of course, of these huge crowds that had gathered and were cheering him on. And so toward the end of his act, he grabbed a wheelbarrow and shouted to the crowd, Do you believe that I can carry a person across the tightrope in this wheelbarrow? And the crowds all shouted, Yes, we believe you can. So Blondin said, Good. And who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Of course, the crowd was silent, you see, believing that someone can accomplish something in their life, and yet trusting them to accomplish that very same thing in your life, well, those are two altogether different things. The crowds believed in Blondin, they did, but not enough to trust them with their own lives. And if I'm being honest, I'm afraid that is a fairly accurate description of many Christians today when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in Him, we do. Yet we don't always trust our lives to Him completely. And of course, the question is why? Why does our faith sometimes stop short of trusting God for truly everything in our lives? Well, whether we realize it or not, it's because deep down, we're not convinced that Jesus is enough. We believe He is who He says He is. And we believe that he did all the things that his word says that he did. We do. Yet at the end of the day, most of us live our lives as if he's not enough. And so we try and compensate by putting a measure of trust in other things. Politics, political leaders, the economy, money, right? The, the promises of others and maybe most common of all, ourselves. Because deep down, we don't really believe that Jesus is enough. We say we do, and when times are good, of course, it's easy to say that. But what about when times are not so good? What about when times are terrible? Do you trust in Jesus just as much then, or do you start to look to other places or to other people to give you what you need or what you desire? Because listen, if you only trust God when you get what you want, or when your circumstances are favorable, and yet when you don't get what you want, or your circumstances are horrible, if in those times you find yourself unwilling to completely trust Him, then what you actually believe is that Jesus isn't enough for you. And by the way, if that's you, you're in good company. Because the great apostle Paul struggled with the very same issue. When something terrible was plaguing him, he doesn't say exactly what it was, but we know that it was bad enough for him to repeatedly ask the Lord to take it away from him. And yet God's response to Paul was, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. In other words, Paul, I'm enough for you. 
even when you don't get what you want and even when your circumstances are terrible, even them, I am all that you need. Enough to meet every need, to overcome every obstacle and to satisfy every desire. King David, Israel's greatest human king, a man who faced some of the most overwhelming battles in all of history, a man who also failed miserably at times in his own life because he didn't always believe that God was enough to satisfy and sustain him. With every human and material resource at his disposal, David wrote these words. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright, Psalm 27 through 8. David wrote those words because even with every advantage this world had to offer, every material blessing, when facing the most difficult circumstances, the greatest enemies of his life, King David finally came to understand that God was in fact more than enough to meet every need, to overcome every obstacle, and to satisfy every desire. Even earlier in this book of 1 Samuel, that we've been studying together early on in the story, Hannah was struggling intensely to trust God for her desire for a son, and yet she ended up writing a song that expressed her newfound understanding that God was in fact enough for her, no matter what was happening in her life or in the world around her. This is what she wrote. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. 1 Samuel 2, 6 through 9, Hannah finally came to understand that no matter how great the struggle, God was more than enough to meet every need, to overcome every obstacle, and to satisfy every desire. And the truth is, the truth is we need to learn this too. Because look, it's okay to face something in your life that challenges your trust in God but it's not okay to stay that way. Some of the greatest men and women of the faith in all of human history have struggled trusting God, but they didn't stay that way because they chose to trust him even when things weren't good and even when they didn't feel like trusting him. And as a result, they learned firsthand that God is in fact enough for you no matter what you're facing. And at the end of the day, look, that's a choice that every single one of us has to make because there are going to be days when it isn't looking good. There are going to be days when you don't, when you don't get what you want. Okay, There are going to be days when you don't feel like you're able to trust Him. And listen, those days are just as much a part of God's design for your life as all of the other days. I mean, look at what we just read from Hannah. You see, there are times in every one of our lives where God will not only allow, but he will actually lead you to the end of yourself, to a place where all that is left is you and Jesus. Why? 
because he wants every one of us to answer the same question that Paul and David and Hannah had to answer for themselves. Is God enough? Is he enough for you to meet every need, to overcome every obstacle, and to satisfy every desire. Is God enough? That is the seminal question that he has been leading his people to have to confront in their own lives from the very beginning, as we'll see in our story today as we continue this sermon series, working our way through 1 Samuel. Listen, uh, if you're feeling stuck today, stuck in your life because you're lacking something you need or facing something you feel you cannot overcome or going without something you desperately desire, okay? Until you settle this one question once and for all in your own heart, is God enough? Until you answer that question, you're not going to get very far. And I'm telling you, he will not only allow you to get to that place of desperation in your own life where you have to answer that question, but the truth is God will gladly lead you there if, it's, if that's what it takes for you to settle once and for all that he is, in fact, enough for you. And we're going to see that in our story today. So let's pick it back up where we left off last time at 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll begin by reading the first nine verses. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Not only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So uh, chapter 8 is actually a turning point in Old Testament history because it marks the transition for the people of God from judgeship to kingship. Up until now, God raised up judges to help govern and guide them. But now the people want a monarchy. They want a human king to replace the judges, which was brought on at least in part, as we see here, by the judges themselves. Now, uh, look, without a doubt, God has raised up Samuel, who was one of the godliest men in all of the Bible. And yet, like the rest of us, he was far from perfect, as evidenced by the fact that he appoints his own sons as judges over Israel, which was not his place or his responsibility to set up some kind of ruling dynasty over God's people, which, uh, which by the way, Gideon made clear all the way back in Judges 8.23 that it was not the job of the judges on their own to set up a ruling family because when the people attempted to convince him, Gideon, to set up a dynasty with his own sons and grandsons after his great uh, victory over the Midianites, Gideon replies, no, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Judges 8.23. Yet Samuel sets up his sons 
as deputy judges and eventual successors anyway in the sanctuary at Beersheba. It was a town in the uh, the extreme south of Israel's territory, well beyond Samuel's regular circuit of towns that he traveled to, as we saw back in chapter 7. And so being out of regular contact with their father, these two sons, much like the sons of Eli, were more interested in what this world had to offer them than they were in what God had to offer them. So they used their position and influence to line their pockets by extorting people and perverting justice in direct violation of God's command in Deuteronomy 16, 19. And so the people have had enough. And since Samuel's now getting old, they come to him and demand that he point for them a king to judge them like all the nations. And if you read that phrase, the nations, in the ancient Hebrew, it's the word gohi. It's reference to the heathen nations specifically, or the Gentile nations around them which is fascinating because at the same time they are fed up with Samuel's sons as judges for being more interested in what this world has to offer them than they are in what God has to offer them. It's the exact same desire that is motivating these elders of Israel to demand from Samuel, an earthly king, to rule over them. Appoint for us a king to judge us like what? like all the nations, so we can be like all the nations. In other words, even though God has intended for us to be distinct, set apart from all the other nations around us, according to Leviticus 20, 26, we're actually more interested in what they have. We're more interested in what the world has to offer us than we are in what God has to offer us. We want to be like them. So appoint for us a king so we can be just like the pagan nations around us. They were willing to exchange the glory and blessing of being God's unique chosen people for worldly recognition and status among the pagan culture they were surrounded by, which was not only foolish, it was evil. In fact, when verse 6 says, the thing displeased Samuel, that phrase in the Hebrew literally means the thing was evil in Samuel's eyes. And so he goes to the Lord in prayer. And God says, look, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me from being their king. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In other words, you make sure they know exactly what it is they're asking for. Because at the end of the day, the real problem was the fact that the Israelites didn't believe God was enough for them which is why they longed for what the world had to offer more than what God had to offer because in their own hearts, they didn't believe he was enough. And I'm just telling you, the very same lack of desire for God that plagued the people of God then still plagues the people of God today. And if you're not sure if that includes you, then just ask yourself this question. Am I more interested in what Jesus has to offer or what this world has to offer. And of course, we all want to believe that we're more interested in Jesus than anything else in our life right now. And yet if that's true, then that means you're pursuing Jesus more than anything else in your life right now. So are you? Are you pursuing a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ more than you are pursuing anything else right now? in your life. Because if you truly believe that Jesus is enough to meet every need to overcome every obstacle and to satisfy every desire in your life, then I'm telling you, you will seek him far more 
than everything else. So, so do you? Do you seek what he has to offer you more than you seek what this world has to offer you? And again, if you're not sure, just think of it this way. If you were to paint a picture of what you believe your most blessed life would look like, however that, uh, however you imagine that to be, think of what would be in that picture, what it would represent and what you would have and what you would, uh, how you would live your life and what you would experience, right? And then you ask an unbeliever to do the very same thing, to paint a picture of what they believe their most blessed life would look like. And then when you're both done, you put your picture next to theirs. How different would those two pictures be? Or would they look very much the same? Is your idea of a blessed life, the picture that you have in your mind of what it looks like to have God's greatest blessings in your life, is that picture filled with all the same things that are in the pictures of people everywhere who don't even believe in God. Because if you truly believe that Jesus is enough for you, then I'm telling you, your picture won't look anything like those other pictures. Because the people of this world serve this world. The people of God are supposed to serve God which is where all true blessings come from. You understand, God's greatest blessings don't come from serving this world. They come from serving Christ. And so for that purpose, we were created in the image of God to reflect him in this broken world. Why would we ever want to exchange that perfect image of God for the broken image of this world? It's because we don't believe he's enough. And so we long for the very same things the world longs for, and then we wonder why we're never satisfied. Because God knows all of that. Of course, he sees all of that. Because he loves you. And he wants you to come to a settled understanding that he is, in fact, more than enough for you. Because of that, he will allow you, just like he did with the Israelites, to make decisions that will lead you to the end of yourself, to a place of such deep desperation that all that is left is you, Jesus place where the only option you have is to trust him enough to meet every need, to overcome every obstacle, and to satisfy every desire. Corey Ten Boom once said, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. 
He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So up to this point in Israel's history, every Hebrew family was autonomous under the leadership, of course, of the elders. In other words, uh, they were beholden to no one but God. But now, under this new monarchy, they were clamoring for their individual liberty would be erased. And so back in verse 9, God says to Samuel, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them, which was actually a legal expression at the time. It was a formal declaration of the consequences of choosing to live under the ways of a king, indeed, the ways of this world. Forced military service would become the norm as their young men will now be conscripted into the king's army. Others will have to work and keep the king's lands. He will also forcibly take away the very best of the people's lands and belongings and give them to his servants. He will confiscate their best workers, both human and animal, for his own purposes. They will be taxed in increasingly oppressive ways, something they'd never known before. And ultimately, this once free people would become slaves to the monarchy until they cry out for deliverance from the oppressive rule they insisted on having. Sure enough, we see all of this beginning to take place as early as the reign of David in 2 Samuel 6, 1, also chapter 8, uh, verses 15 through 18, and progressing until Solomon's rule, which becomes excessively burdensome and oppressive in 1 Kings 12, 4, ultimately leading to the rejection of Solomon's successor by the northern tribes. And so Samuel under God's direction, spells all of this out to the Israelites in detail ahead of time so no one could say they didn't know what it was they were asking for. By the way, uh, it's not as if they had no real-life context or frame of reference for this because just to the north of them, their neighbors, an ancient port city in northern Syria connected uh, to the Hittite empires, a city named Ugarit, had reached its golden age during the 14th and 13th centuries BC, beginning some about 200 years before the time of Samuel, under this very same uh, model of rule. In fact, we have ancient records that attest to the practices of the Ugaritic monarchy ruling over its people. And I'm just telling you, it looks exactly like the description given here to the Hebrew people by Samuel. In other words, Samuel is making it crystal clear to the Israelites what you're asking for is to be like all the nations around you, just like these guys up north here, and that is precisely what you're going to get. Slavery to the world system instead of the freedom available to you under the kingship of Yahweh. And on the surface, it seems ridiculous that any of God's people, let alone the the vast majority of them would ever willingly exchange the freedom they have under his rule for the slavery of being ruled by this world. And yet it, it's no different than what so many of God's people still do today. We willingly choose to live in enslavement to the ways of this world instead of enjoying the freedom that we have in Christ. And again, if you're not sure if that applies to you, then just ask yourself, am I free in Christ? or enslaved by this world. Now listen, 
if you're a born-again believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a child of God, just to be clear, you are free in Christ. But you wouldn't know it looking at how so many of us choose to live our lives today. And look, if that's you, if, if your life is bound up in the ways of this world instead of the ways of Christ, the problem isn't that you've somehow lost your freedom. No, the problem is you've simply chosen to live under the slavery of a system that Jesus died to set you free from. And why in the world would anyone ever willingly do that? It's because we're not convinced that Jesus is enough. And so just like the Israelites, we choose the ways of this world over the ways of God. We choose to serve mammon, money, to the point that we're enslaved by it. We, we choose fear over faith. We choose political power over the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we choose pleasing people over pleasing God. We choose self-gratification over self-denial. We choose our own priorities over God's priorities over and over and over and over again until we're enslaved by all the things this world says we should be living for, all the things that Jesus came to set us free from. And yet the one thing the only thing that could ever meet every need, overcome every obstacle, and satisfy every desire of the Israelites was the very thing they rejected. And it's no different today. Because only Jesus can meet every need, overcome every obstacle, and satisfy every desire in our lives. Listen, there is nothing else on this earth, in heaven above or hell below, that can provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. Only Jesus can do that. You understand the angels can't do it. Moses couldn't do it. Aaron couldn't do it. Joshua couldn't do it. The judges couldn't do it. The kings couldn't do it. Not even the law was enough to meet the needs, overcome the obstacles, or fulfill the longings of God's people. And I'm telling you, your job can't do it. Your spouse can't do it. Your family can't do it. Your friends can't do it. Your income can't do it. Your church can't do it. Your religion can't do it. Because there's nothing in this world, not even close, that can meet every one of your needs, overcome every one of your obstacles, and satisfy every one of your desires, because only Jesus Christ can do that. But listen, if you don't believe he's enough, you will turn to just about anything and everything but Jesus to meet your needs and overcome your obstacles and satisfy your desires, which is exactly what scores of Christians do every single day in their lives. And if that's you, listen, if that's you, God knows that. And he sees all of that happening in your life. And yet because he loves you so much, he is more than willing to allow you to make those choices until they lead you to the end of yourself place where all that's left is you and Jesus. A place where the only option you have left is to trust him enough to meet every need, to overcome every obstacle, and to satisfy every desire. And look, he, he's the only one who can. 19th century Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, 
There is not a square inch of domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, it is mine. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 19 to the end of the chapter. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. But Samuel had heard all the words of the people. He repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This last part of the story is, uh, it's almost comical because even though the people are rejecting the rule of God in their own lives and in the process they believe they're in control of the situation, they cannot escape his sovereignty, his kingship over what ultimately happens in this world and in their lives, because even though they think they're in control, it is God who appoints their earthly kings. It is God who establishes Jesus Christ through that very line of earthly kings. And it is God who sends them home, every man to his city, without so much as a single suggestion from the people about what should happen next. You understand? God will never step down from his throne no matter how much we may want him to or how hard we try to get him to because he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords even when we reject his rule in our own lives. You see, when our needs are not being met or our obstacles not overcome or our desires are not being satisfied, it's not because he isn't enough. It's because we think we're enough. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if you think you can meet your own needs or overcome your own obstacles or satisfy your own desires in this life, I'm telling you the only person you're fooling is yourself. The Israelites were only fooling themselves by rejecting God as their king. And as a result, every time God's people rejected him throughout their entire history, their needs went unmet. They became slaves to the obstacles before them. And they were perpetually dissatisfied. And worst of all, they missed out on God's perfect will for their lives. Just look at the generation that wandered in the wilderness under Moses. They were completely unable to care for themselves apart from God's supernatural provision. They became enslaved to their wanderings in the wilderness, and they were constantly grumbling, dissatisfied with their lives because they didn't believe that God was enough for them. And the result was an entire generation missed out on entering the promised land. And look, I, I think it is exceedingly important that we examine our own hearts here when it comes to the kingship of Christ in our own lives and just be brutally honest with ourselves about who or what it is that we've allowed to sit on that throne in our hearts and then ask ourselves this question, am I missing out on God's perfect will for my life? Because listen, if there's anything or anyone other than Jesus occupying his rightful place in your life, on that throne, in your heart, then I can unequivocally answer that question for you. If you don't truly believe that Jesus is enough for you, then you're absolutely missing out on the life that you could be living with Jesus as your king. And I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. Because I love you. Okay, you're never going to have your needs met. 
you will never overcome the obstacles in your life and you will never be satisfied with your life as long as you reject Jesus as king. And you understand that's not what he wants. It's not what he wants for your life. In fact, he wants nothing more than to meet your needs and overcome your obstacles and satisfy your desires. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants his best for you. And so because of that, just like with the Israelites, he will allow you to continue to make choices that will eventually lead you to the end of yourself until you come to a place of utter desperation, a place where all that is left is you and Jesus. And he'll allow you to stay there until you ultimately accept or reject this truth that he is the only one who can meet your every need, overcome your every obstacle, and satisfy your every desire. So look, at the end of the day, it really boils down to this one simple question. Is God enough? Because we all know there will be days in your life when things aren't looking so good. Days when you don't always get what you want, days when you struggle trusting him. And yet those days are just as much a part of his plan for your life as all the other days because it is in those very days, those most difficult days, the days when, you're, when your metal is tested and your faith falters, the days when it seems you've nothing left to draw from, the days when you have run your course and come to the end of yourself, the days when all that is left is you and Jesus. Yet as difficult as they may be, those are the days that shape the rest of our lives because it is in those most desperate days when Jesus does his best work in your life, meeting every need, overcoming every obstacle, and satisfying every desire. Until all that remains is one simple and yet undeniably profound truth that Jesus is more than enough for you. Let's pray.